Hey, uh, last week, a couple things we did last week. One is um, that I told all of the husbands um, that they had to write a poem to their wives. Now, um, I, I should have uh, first asked, raise your hand if you were here last week. Now, some of you guys were here. Like, oh, I remember, you know. Was I, was I? Um, how many, it, l- let me start by saying this. At the nine o'clock service in Arcadia, I, I asked uh, how many of the husbands had written the poem to their wives and, you know, didn't expect like a unanimous response, but expected something. And, and uh, so I said, hey, you know, how about, how about an amen from all the wives that, that uh, got a poem from their husband? And it was just like, crickets. <laughs> Cr- total crickets. So um, it was sad to know that none of those husbands love their wives. Um, so we got work to do at the 9 a.m. Uh, the 10 o'clock here was, was pretty good, maybe half a dozen, uh, which, which seemed really good uh, coming off the 9. So we kind of were grading on a curve at that point. Um, and then the 11 o'clock back in Arcadia, I'm doing all five today, and, and uh, the 11 o'clock in Arcadia, uh, was, was okay, was okay. So, I know that some of you did receive poems because you posted on Facebook. Pastor Jason's wife posted something on Facebook saying that she did receive her poem and was happy about it. Um, so, how about an amen from all the wives who got poems from their husbands this week? Okay, that's not bad. That's not bad. I think I heard some muttered cuss words from some other wives. <laughs> we'll, we'll just kind of overlook that this time. It's deserved. So um, I will give you a one-week extension. <laughs> Apparently, some people thought I was kidding. I am not kidding. Uh, this is for real. doesn't have to be good. doesn't have to rhyme. Five-sentence minimum. Some of you weren't here last week, and so now I'm, I'm giving you a new challenge. Uh, Solomon's writing poems to his wives. The least wife, well, <laughs> a little Freudian slip there. Um, we can write one poem to our wife, okay? So write your wife a poem. Just tell her how beautiful she is. Tell her how much you love her. Tell her how great she is. Write it down, five lines, don't even check for spelling. Um, and then wives, when your husband reads his poem to you, this cannot be like a slip it under the door, run away thing. Um, this needs to be a reading of the poem. When that happens, uh, pretend like it's good, okay? <laughs> Encourage him, maybe practice in the mirror uh, beforehand, your face of like, oh yeah. Um, don't try to wing it because you'll, you'll fail, okay? Your emotions will show through and you'll be like, uh, he won't even get through the third line, okay? So enjoy it. Husbands, I'm serious. Write your wives a poem. It's not hard. Just make it happen, okay? Second thing I said last week was that November 7th is an important day for us. And so for those of you who were not here last week, on November 7th, we will be making an, out, an announcement um, that is, without question, the biggest announcement we've ever had here at Praxis. Um, November 7th will be the most important day in Praxis history. Um, even though it's in the future, it will be the most important day in our history. It's so big, it transcends time, okay? 
very, very important. If you care even a little bit, even if you're just kind of curious about our future, um, you will want to be here on November 7th. Now, I've been told by some of my staff and some of the wives of my staff that they have been pumped for information. Um, they will not tell you, okay, uh, because I will fire them if they do, all right? So if they tell you, come tell me, and then we'll go terminate them together, all right? <laughs> okay, November 7th, be here. It's going to be important. It's going to be big. We're very excited about it. It, it is easily the biggest day uh, in the history of Praxis, okay? So, I'm sorry? It has to do with Praxis. That's your hint. <laughs> That's your hint, and I'm not saying anything more, all right? So, Song of Solomon, chapter 7. Uh, if you want to turn there, we have one more week in this story. Um, but this week is really the end of, of Solomon's story. Next week, um, it, it, it takes a little bit of a turn. We get the, uh, the, the promised awkward statement of the brothers coming up next week. Um, but this week is really the summation of their relationship. And, and as, we, as we get started, um, I, I will say that I had mixed emotions about, about this message this week, really struggled um, with how to put it together, and, and even through the morning, three messages, uh, really struggled with, with how, to, uh, how to really drive this home, and, and so we'll, we'll see how this goes. So uh, chapter 7, verse 11. The bride is speaking. She says, Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O my beloved. So um, we are now a, a few years, maybe a year into their marriage um, we know that uh, it is at least that amount of time because one of the themes that has been prominent throughout this book has been the changing of the seasons, right? If you'll remember in the first couple of chapters, one, two, and three, uh, when they were still dating, courting, um, they, Solomon spoke of their dating period as, as a winter time, as a dreary time, as a cold time, and we talked about the uniqueness of that, um, that a young man would look forward to marriage as, as a springtime, as, as the warmth, as something to look forward to instead of um, as, as something to, to, to dread. And so um, this, this idea of, of the seasons defining their relationship um, has been prominent throughout. And so here we see uh, spring again. We see the uh, flowers blooming and the fruits, the, the, the buds on the trees coming alive. And so it is, it is spring again, perhaps chronologically, um, but certainly in their relationship. It is a time for a re reawakening of love. Okay, and so um, they've entered into their marriage. They, they are into kind of the, the day-in, day-out rhythm of their marriage. And, and they have found at this point, as all married couples do, that um, marriage is not this eternal romantic moment. You, um, in fact, are not naked all the time and, and are not constantly staring into one another's eyes. That, that eventually you do put the clothes back on and you go to work and um, you have a life. And, and eventually you experience these kinds of ebbs and flows and ups and downs of, of marriage. 
And, and, and really, even in the downs, I, I don't mean um, fights and anger and manipulation and, and really the, the really, really bad parts um, of some relationships. I just mean the normal um, kind of turn of events of being uh, just kind of overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by work and overwhelmed by children and just, just the things that, that are responsibilities that we bear that can um, distract us from that intense love and emotion that we felt in those early days years and, and in the kind of honeymoon period. And so um, there are times where we can pay attention to that, and then there's times where um, it just goes away. And so everybody feels this. Everybody that has been in marriage understands that there's days where it, you just, it, you maybe go days or even weeks on end where you don't have a sit-down, face-to-face, deep conversation with your spouse. That happens, right? And, and it's something we need to be aware of. It's something we need to fight, and it's not, it's not altogether horrible if we're aware of it and, and can kind of keep track of it, but um, the, these things happen. I, I leave the house every morning before my wife and my daughter wake up, and, and I come home at the end of the day, spend a couple of hours um, with my daughter before she goes to sleep, and I, I stay pretty focused on her for those couple hours, in part just to continue to develop our relationship and so that she gets some daddy time and I get some Lily time, and, um, but also to, to get her away from Emily, who is at that point on the border of insanity. And so um, I, I try to preserve her mind. And so I take Lily away for a couple hours and, and you know, just, just kind of give her my focus. And, and so after that, I, I'm, I'm wiped out by, by two hours with her is, is a full workout. And so we put her to bed and we have a couple of hours, my wife and I do, at the end of the day. And um, we sometimes read together. We sometimes, we don't read, I mean, we read separately. I'm not like reading to her, um, but um, eh, sometimes. So uh, uh, we read together, we, we watch a show, we, whatever it is. But there are certainly days when we are climbing into bed at the end of the day. And I, as we're climbing to bed, I go, you know, we haven't even kissed today a single time. We haven't even kissed. And so we do, because it, I'm anti that. I'm anti not kissing her. And so um, it, it's, but, but it's, just the, it's just the rhythm of life. It's just kind of how things happen. And so um, there needs to be an intentional moment on our part um, as, as husband or wife to, to draw attention to that and to, to remember to be intentional, um, to, to reignite to when we are in kind of one of those low points and one of those doldrums to, to come back out of it. And I, and I think that's exactly what, what she's doing here. They're, they're just kind of in, in perhaps the winter of their relationship, and, and she's, she's trying to bring back spring, and so she's trying to reawaken their love um, to get out of town. She wants to go uh, out into the country. She wants to go to the villages. She wants to be around the fruit and the, and the vegetables and the trees, and um, in, in verse uh, 13, the mandrakes are uh, historically have been thought of as an aphrodisiac, so she wants to kind of spice up the relationship again. Um, And she's very specific about where she wants to go in chapter 8, verse 1. Before she says where she wants to go, she says uh, a curious thing. She says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. So, she draws him out to the, to the countryside to have this second honeymoon or vacation and then says, oh man, I wish you were my brother um, so that I could kiss you. And so um, there's a question here of interpretation. Did the setting all of a sudden move to Buckeye? Or did, um, <laughs> and that's probably not it. And so um, actually culturally, um, 
<laughs> men and women were not allowed. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Buckeye people. I know we have Buckeye people and you're just like, yeah, he's fun. And so uh, culturally speaking, um, in, in, in this time, people were not allowed to show affection, show physical affection to anyone that was not their, um, not, not their relative. And so she's basically saying, I wish you were my brother because then I could kiss you in public. I want to kiss you. I want to show affection to you all the time. Um, but, but I can't in public because that's our culture and we wouldn't want anybody to think that, you know, these married people actually, actually like each other. And so um, they, they were not allowed to do it. Clearly, our culture has swung to the other side where now in our common vernacular are things like get a room, right? What you're doing right now belongs in private, all right? So it's, it's changed a bit from then. Verse 2, she says, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. So um, she wants to get away from the castle. If you remember from the beginning that um, this is a girl who grew up middle class, maybe poor. Um, She probably grew up without a father. Um, She grew up uh, having to tend to her uh, family's garden, her family's vineyard. Um, She's strong. She's got calloused hands. She's got dark skin from the sun. Um, She has been escorted into this royal lifestyle, having married the king. And so when she wants to get away, when she wants to go on vacation, she she wants to go home. She wants to go to a place of comfort. She wants to go to a place that she knows, a place that she can be herself, right? A place of stability where there's not the pressures of the kingdom, not the pressures of the royal court, she can just kind of get out and, and be on her own. And, 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 I, and I totally get where she's coming from because my wife is the exact same way. Um, my wife loves to go back to her hometown. In fact, she's there right now. Um, in, and she's from a little, little town outside of San Francisco called Gilroy, uh, which is, in fact, the garlic capital of, I believe, the universe now. And they, they produce most of, um, love garlic, and, uh, and so they produce most of the garlic uh, there in Gilbert. And it's just this little, little small town, primarily agricultural, and just in spite of the smell, she just loves it. And so um, she could spend weeks and weeks there if I'd let her. Um, I would love to spend hours and hours there. And, and um, it's a nice little town. I love her family. It's fantastic um, when she goes there. And so uh, she, she loves it because it's, it's what she knows. It's where she's comfortable and, and she is known there. Um, and and, and it's, it's where she wants to find rest. It's where she can find rest. And so I, I think that there is something really practical for us uh, guys to hear that, that there are moments when we need to, to sacrifice our vacation, our desires perhaps, for the sake of our wives and, and spend time where they want to spend time, where they would feel rested, where they would feel loved and comforted. Because we know that when our wives are happy and when our wives are uh, not stressed out, that makes our lives a lot better. So um, perhaps the next vacation doesn't need to be to the Baseball Hall of Fame and the Football Hall of Fame and the Basketball Hall of Fame and the NASCAR event and a beef jerky factory, right? And so um, maybe you can, you can mix in something more Martha Stewart-y for her. Um, we, we go to Gilroy a lot, um, but we always take a day or two to go into San Francisco because I love San Francisco. And so um, there's, there's an opportunity there for, to serve my wife, but also uh, enjoy myself there. Now, my in-laws listen to the podcast, and so I have to say, I do love Gilroy. I love my family. So, um, I, 
I don't know why you guys are laughing. But perhaps we can learn from Solomon's example here uh, as, as he goes out to the countryside to his wife's home. Verse 3. She says, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, both of those lines should be familiar because we've heard uh, both of them before. In chapter three, when Solomon's uh, wedding procession was coming out to get his bride, uh, the, her friends said that exact same thing, who is coming up from the wilderness, and it was, it was Solomon with all of his mighty men, and now as they return, uh, this is most likely the friends, again, kind of re- reiterating that, that same refrain, saying, who is this coming up from the wilderness? Um, it is, it is now now the bride leaning on her beloved. And then she again says, O daughters of Jerusalem, I adjure you, do not stir up or awaken love too soon. In other words, that there, there is a wonderful time and a place and a process and a, and a vision that God has for our sexuality and our romantic lives and, and, and love lives and married lives and all that, um, that, that is supposed to work this way. And so she reminds, reminds her friends. And then says, under the apple tree, uh, under the apple tree I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. And so um, aside from the kind of awkward reference to his mother giving birth to him, um, again, this is just a statement of her saying, let's go back. Let's go back to where this whole romance started. Let's go back to where we dated. Let's visit those places. Let's sit under that apple tree. Let's, let's be in my mother's home. Let's, let's um, hang out in, in that grove that we loved so much. Let's, you know, I mean, the, let's go back to where our love began to rekindle and reawaken love. So th- this is just a, a very intentional act on her part um, that, that perhaps coming out of one of those lows to, to try to find uh, another one of those highs in the relationship that just is a romantic moment. And sometimes it doesn't even need to be a vacation. It just needs to be five minutes where you sit down and look, look your wife in the eye and go, oh yeah, I remember why I love you. I remember why I wanted to be with you. I remember why I committed my life to you. And just a, a moment to block out everything else that's going on, look her in the eyes and just go, I still love you. I still want to be with you. And I've written you a poem because Pastor Justin told me to, okay? <laughs> All right, so um, this is just an intentional act that I, that I think these are, are consistently important um, to be able to be a part of a, a vibrant marriage relationship. Now, Verses 6 and 7 are, are the troubling ones for me. Um, and mostly because two things. One is we know where this relationship is going, right? We, we have uh, well documented that the future of their relationship is, is not a good future. Um, that by the time Solomon is an old man, um, he has redefined polygamy um, in, in that he has 700 wives and 300 concubines. That, that the desires that he had ended up ruling over his heart. We looked at that last week. Um, he did not fight for his marriage. He did not fight for his, the love of his life, and, and he lost. And so what's difficult is to read verses 6 and 7, which are this, this profession of love from the bride. It's difficult to read that without, without seeing it through the lens of, of where they're going. And there, there's just, there just seems to be a hint 
of desperation, just, just maybe a hint of concern in her voice as she um, talks about the power of love, the strength of love, the unquenchable fire of love. There they're just seems to be a sense of her begging that this would be true. And, and maybe this is just me reading through the lens of 1 Kings, um, and, and that may be entirely true, but um, there, there's a, just a, a little bit of, of melancholy in it for me. The second reason was, as much as I have loved this series, and, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well, I hope it's been helpful for you, um, as much as I have loved it, there's also been a, a, a dark side to it in that it, it's brought up a lot of issues in marriages, and, and we've been made known, the pastors have um, been told about um, infidelity in, in marriages, um, addictions to, to pornography in marriages, um, abuse and manipulation and distance and um, passive husbands and weak husbands and uh, just it, it's been it's been sobering uh, to say the least and so um, reading passages like this knowing where their marriage is headed knowing where so many of our marriages are today and 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 where many of us who are even here in this room uh, what we're dealing with and and the kind of the kind of backstory we bring into passages like this is just it's just really sobering, and and so um, I I think we 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 came pretty hard on on the husbands for the last two weeks, and 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 not not for no reason certainly, but um, I think we'll we'll take a decidedly pastoral uh, bent this evening. So, verse six, she says to her husband. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Um, the, there was a, an ancient Near Eastern uh, custom uh, for a family member to wear a ring um, or an armband, sometimes even a necklace um, that would denote the family that they are a part of, and it was their seal, and so they would be able to press it into doc, you know, press it into documents to kind of leave their mark. If you remember the story of the prodigal son in the Gospels, um, when the son returned, when the prodigal returned, his father welcomed him back with clothing and food and, and a ring to put on his finger, which was um, more, most likely the seal of their family to say, you are again a part of our family. We, we love you. We accept you. We'll never let you go. You will always be a part of our family. And so um, to hear the bride say this to Solomon here, she, she, she says, set me as a seal upon your heart, set me as a seal upon your arm, in, a, in, 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 in almost a, a haunting way to, to hear her in light of um, what the next 40 years of their life looks like, um, to hear her in this context say, set me as a seal, make, make me your own, make me your only, um, set me as a seal on your heart, set me as a seal on your arm, let, let me be yours and yours alone, let me be your only one um, is is just it's just hard it's just hard to hear and it's it's haunting for me. She says, "For love is strong as death." This is a this is a, a really powerful powerful statement to say that that their love is is as strong as death. Death is is probably the strongest thing in in our existence. It's the only thing that that has an unrelenting grip on us, right? As they, as they say that the current death rate in America is 100%, right? Nobody, nobody escapes death. 
everybody dies. You, you can't wrestle your way out of the clutches of death. It's coming for, for all of us eventually. And so she, she says, listen, this, this love, this love that we have, this love that, that I've given to you, that, that you have returned to me, it ought to be as strong as death. This, this ought to be just an unrelenting um, passion, an unrelenting covenant, an unrelenting commitment that we have made to one another. And it, it, there should be no sense in which this, this is understood in any other way than as strong as death. This is in part why we say, as we stand before the preacher, till death do us part. That only death is strong enough to, to wrench us away um, from the one we love. This, this is how it, how it ought to be. She says, jealousy is as fierce as the grave. And this is, this is kind of an interesting um, comment because we mostly use the word jealousy in a negative sense, right? That we have a jealous boyfriend or a jealous girlfriend, a jealous husband or a jealous um, mother-in-law or whatever the case may be, that, um, that it tends to be a really negative thing that, that we understand. And yet, clearly in this context, it's positive. That, that she's saying, uh, this, this jealousy that we have for one another um, is as strong in the grave in this, in, in this long list of things that, that are, are meant to be positive. And really, as, as jealousy is used throughout the scriptures, it's used almost universally positively and usually about God. Saying that, that God is jealous for us, that God is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, it says, God is a consuming fire. He is jealous for his people, jealous for their worship. I'll never forget, I, I heard Oprah Winfrey one time, not a great source, but nonetheless, um, heard Oprah Winfrey discuss um, kind of the moment that she turned away from Christianity was when she was told um, that God was a jealous God. She could not get her mind around that. She said, how could God be jealous of me? Is God so small? Is God so insecure? Is God so, is God so anxious about life that, that he would be jealous of me? And, and I remember hearing it and being frustrated by it and being saddened by it because she, she completely misunderstood what is, what is a very powerful concept. She misunderstood it because she got one little word wrong. That, that God is not jealous of you in that he goes, oh man, I wish I could work for that accounting firm, right? God, God doesn't want our lives. God is jealous for us. God is jealous for us. God is not jealous of us. God, God is jealous for our lives. God is jealous for our worship. And this is ultimately the difference between a, a godly jealousy and an ungodly jealousy, both from God to his people and from a husband to a wife or a wife to a husband. That, that we are ultimately jealous for the person, for their good. And so there, there are three things, I'm sure there's more, but I identified three things that I think are, are the difference between a godly and an ungodly jealousy. And the first is um, godly jealousy is always protective. It's always protective, 
right? But it's not protective of our, our own good. It's not protective of our own interests. It's always, and this is the second thing, it's always selfless in that it is protective for the good of the other. And so when God is, is jealous for us, when God is, says that he is a jealous God, so we should not worship other idols, it's because he knows that when our heart's affections are turned, when our minds are turned and they are pressed towards an idol, that that idol will always lead to pain and destruction. That, that that idol will never lead to joy and satisfaction. And so he's jealous for our future. He's jealous for our lives because he knows that if we will worship him, if we will obey him, if we will walk down that path of pursuit, we will experience joy and satisfaction in our lives and, and the life that he created us for. But if our heart is turned and our affections are stirred for an idol, for a different God, a a lesser thing, and we worship and expect it to be what only God can be, he knows it will learn to or lead to let down and pain and destruction. And so he's jealous for us. The third thing about a godly jealousy that we can experience in relationships is that it's always positive. Right? Commonly, the manifestation of an ungodly jealousy is, is negative. It's anger. It's lashing out. Um, ungodly jealousy manifests itself through manipulation, through shame and guilt. Right? When we are um, a, a jealous husband, we'll, we'll belittle his wife will call her names if he sees her glance at another man or interact with another man and his jealousy is stirred up, not jealous for her to protect her, but jealous because his pride is wounded, because he is insecure. That jealousy manifests itself negatively. He calls her names, he belittles her, he tells her that she's not beautiful, he gets angry with her for having a conversation with another man. It manifests negatively. But godly jealousy always manifests itself positively. Think of it this way. When the people of Israel were rebellious against God, when we are rebellious against God, when our heart's affections are turned from God towards an idol, God doesn't woo us with anger. He woos us back. He is jealous for us with grace. He is jealous for us with mercy. He is jealous for us with love. Scriptures say it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That it's the very things that attracted us to God, that drew us to God in the first place, that God uses to draw us back to him. And so um, the same thing is true in our relationships. If you feel the heart of your wife drifting away, if you feel the eyes of your husband drifting away and you respond negatively to that, you respond in anger, you will simply push them further away. You have to woo them. You have to draw them in. You have to love them. The, the very thing that you used to get them in the first place, right? When, when you first saw your wife across the room and you went, Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. You didn't march over to her angrily, right? Hey! (laughs) Who do you think you are, right? Oh, right? Like that didn't happen, okay? That did not happen. 
So that, that the love and the tenderness and the gentleness and the grace and the romance that you use to woo your, heart the, your wife's heart the first time, if you feel it drifting away, is the same thing you should use to draw it back. That anger only pushes away. Wives, if, if you sense that your husband's eyes are drifting and you respond by nagging him, belittling him, telling him he's not attractive, telling him that he's no good, you are simply pushing him further away. There is nothing about a nagging wife that would draw the heart of a man back. There's nothing about a negative, angry wife that would make a husband go, oh, I can't wait to get home and be nagged. That doesn't happen. You will just push him further away. Instead, encourage him. Tell him that you love him. Tell him that he's the only man for you. Tell him how great he is. Even if you gotta work hard to come up with stuff. Encourage him. Be positive in your wooing, right? You chose to marry him in the first place. There's gotta be reasons why you did that. So, a godly jealousy just the same way God's godly jealousy manifests itself positively through love and grace and affection, the very things that we love most about God draw, draws back to himself, so in our relationships. She says, it's flashes, love. It loves flashes, our flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And so um, she, she's saying here that, uh, that marriage is not this, this kind of constant burn, this constant uh, just, just strong fire all the time. We, we understand that. But at the same time, it's not just this kind of low-level smoldering coals either, that there are moments of, of passion, that there need to be moments of passion that spring up, these flashes of fire that are strong and passionate and romantic and, and sexual, that these have to be a part of that love. And so she points that out as well, says it's the very flame of the Lord that has that kind of power. In fact, it's so powerful, verse 7, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. So it's, it's these flashes of passion, flashes of fire, but not in, in a way that is, that it is kind of here today, gone tomorrow, that's a flash in the pan kind of a thing, that it is a strong fire that simply wells up from time to time, so strong a fire that many floods cannot quench it. It cannot, simply cannot be put out. And then lastly, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. If a man offered all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. And so there, there's two things here that, that I want us to see. One is um, that there, there's no amount of money right, that the love is so valuable that there's no amount of money that could warrant selling it. She, she says to Solomon, she, she says to, to her husband who is about to cheat on her 699 times, our love is so valuable that, that it cannot be purchased. It, it reminds me of what a, um, a young British man once said, you can't buy me love, right? Um, that... <laughs> That it, is, that it is, in fact, so valuable, 
right, that, that it cannot be bought. But, but even more than that, it, it, it says, it doesn't say, um, if, if someone offered, lo- uh, offered money, all the wealth of his house, and she knew some wealthy people. She, she's the wife of the king. She knew some wealthy people. So she says to Solomon, no, even, even that guy, if that guy offered all of his wealth for our, our love, not, not only does she say, I would say no, but she says, he would be despised. Right? And, and the sense that we get here is not that she would, he would just be despised by her, like as a person despised, but like generally despised by the, the surrounding city would look at him and go, how dare you think that any amount of money could, could buy that love? Right? It, it reminds me of that movie from the 90s, that indecent proposal where uh, the, the guy offered a large sum of money for a night with the, with the other guy's wife. Um, I, I won't ruin the ending because I didn't see it, uh, but, but it, that seems like a bad idea, right? Watching the movie and, and this and offering all, all of your wealth for, for love. She says you would be despised. That there's something so sacred about it. There's, there's something so important about it that not only would you just turn them down, but you would, in, in fact, be disgusted by the very offer. Because there's something so unique and so sacred and so important about this love and about this marriage that, that money is, is, is far too cheap a commodity to even, even be spoken of in the same sentence. And this is, this is the part that always kept getting me this week because I just don't think that's true. I mean, I, I think it's actually true. I just don't think it's true in most of our minds. I mean, m- my experience in, in, in our culture has been that, that we don't consider marriage to be a sacred thing. In spite of the fact that it's, it's, it's one of the rare moments in, in human existence where God actually intervenes. I and mean, we've talked about this many times that God, in this consummation of marriage, um, actually intervenes, creating two into one. God moves in the middle of that supernaturally, does this thing that we could never do. In spite of the fact that God chose marriage, this relationship, to be one of those places that he intervenes in, in, a, in a dramatic and supernatural way. In spite of that, we just don't think marriage is that sacred. We don't think love is that sacred. We, we hop in and we hop out. We get married and we divorce. Half of every marriage now is ending in divorce and so we're kind of in and then it just doesn't go well and so we're out and we we say things like, well, I loved him, but now I, I've fallen out of love. The Bible just doesn't have a category for that. There, there's no category for, eh, I just didn't feel it anymore. We, we drifted apart. The, the creator of the concept of love goes, I don't understand what you're talking about. That that is not a potential outcome of this thing I designed called love. 
that that is not a potential outcome of this thing I designed called marriage. Have you ever thought about the fact that you in and of yourself have zero ability to conjure up the desire to commit your life to another person? That, That even the inherent desire to do that was created and given to you as a gift by God for your joy, for your satisfaction, for his glory. He gave you that possibility. He invented the idea so that you could experience that. And now we go, well, I'm in, but now I'm out, and I was in, but now I fell out, and now I decided we drifted, and God goes, that doesn't compute. That, that's, there's no category for that in here. Love is a a seal upon your heart, is a seal upon your arm. Love is strong as death, jealous as the grave, flashes of fire, unable to be succumbed by floods, sacred and holy. And so I really struggle with these two verses. I struggle because of the people saying them and where their life ended. I struggle because of our church and where I see so many of our lives headed. So I struggle only thing that gives me hope in this the only thing that gives me hope is that i know that that this that this description of love is is not not solely a description of romantic love it's not only a description of of our marriages right that, that the very creator of love who, who considers this thing to be so sacred and so important and so holy, even, even when we do not, do you know that just God disagrees with you? That you go, well, yeah, I just, you know, it's not that big a deal and we can just be in it and we can be out of it. And it's not, it's just, it's not that big a deal. God is in heaven, just so you know. God is in heaven going, I respectfully disagree. It is a big deal. You know how I know it's a big deal? Because God intervenes in it and because God used it as one of the primary vehicles to communicate his love for you. We've we've talked about this enough in Ephesians. We see God telling us of his love for us using the metaphor of a husband and a wife. That Paul says that the husband is like Jesus. He comes for his bride. He woos her. He leads her. He cherishes her. He communicates love and mercy and grace to her. He sacrificed over and over and over for her. We see in Philippians that that Christ gave up his seat in heaven, gave up um, the fullness of his divinity, uh, was willing to become a man, willing to become a man who was a servant, willing to do all those things for the sake of the one he loved, whom Paul calls the bride, his church. So, um, in, in effect, the Gospels um, serve as, as a primer of sorts on how to be a good husband. We can watch how Jesus loved the people all throughout his life in the Gospels. We can see how he showed grace to the woman at the well. We can see how he spoke truth to the Pharisees. We can see how he defended the will of God, how he submitted to the will of God, how he sacrificed, how he took beating, and how he ended up on the cross and go, that's how to be a good husband. Because that, that's how Jesus, the groom, loved the church, his bride. And so that gives me great hope when I get to verses six and seven because I know that Jesus sets us as a seal upon his heart, as a seal upon his arm. That Jesus' love for us is as strong as death as it was sealed in his death. 
that Jesus' jealousy for us is as fierce as the grave. His love for us manifests itself in these flashes of fire. Every one of us has experienced that. If we know Christ and walk with Christ, we've experienced these flashes of revelation of his love for us, and that's been these moments of response. He reveals his love, reveals his grace, and we respond in faith and obedience. It's happened over and over and over. As you tell your spiritual story, you are talking about moments in time where you responded to revelations of God's love for you. We know that many waters cannot quench God's love. We know that neither floods can drown it. And we know that if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. We know that. We know that. So we know that God values your marriage more than you do. God, God values your love more than you do. He gave it to you as a gift. So um, as, I, as I thought through this and prayed through this this week, I, um, I felt compelled to just, to just tell you that, and I, and I don't do this enough, but just to tell you that I love you. you I think about you a lot. I, you keep me up at night in a, in a good way mostly. When I hear about your marriages crumbling, it, it, it hurts. Um, so my, my encouragement to you, husbands, just love your wives. Love your wives. Just care for them. Tell them that you love them. Show them that you love them. Be thoughtful. Come home and look them in the eye. Ask them how they did, how their day was. Take the kids away from them. Put them to bed. Do the dishes. Sit down. Listen to them. Pray for them. Lead them spiritually. Wives, listen to your husbands. Just listen to them. They're trying to tell you that they love you. They're not very good at it. Just see through it when they're, when they're kind of shuffling their feet and going, hey, you're pretty great. Just, just know that they're trying. They'll get better. Just hear them. Encourage them. When, when you see them make, it, make an attempt, like when they write you the poem that they're definitely going to write you this week, um, encourage them in that. Thank them. Tell them how great it was. The more you encourage them, the more that they will be comfortable telling you how they feel about you. At the end of the day, my, my prayer is that, that we would value love and marriage as much as God values love and marriage, which is to say a lot. And it's not something that we would enter into lightly, and it's certainly not something that we would step out of. God meant for this to be as strong as the grave. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being the first husband 
the first groom. That we can look at the way that you pursue and, and woo us. How you have drawn us to yourself. We can, we can think back to moments that, that you've revealed your love to us, not only the first time, but so many times since then. Those quiet moments that we've had with you, where you've listened to us, when you've spoken to us. God, I pray for the husbands that they would look to you as the example that they would be willing to sacrifice for their wives, even when it feels like that's all they do is sacrifice, that they would sacrifice more. Knowing that you are our role model, you are our example in marriage, that you sacrificed even to the point of death. Lord, knowing that um, the, the right response of your church and the right response of our brides is, is love and respect. And Lord, may we be just assured that if we love our brides well, they will respond rightly. And let that be an encouragement to us uh, to continue to love and sacrifice for our family. Pray also for the brides and the brides-to-be. God, that they would respond well to their husbands. That they would love them and encourage them, and support them. Help them to, to feel confident enough to speak boldly and speak honestly about um, their feelings and what they're thinking in their relationship. God, just pray for our marriages and all the future marriages. Pray for the kids, that they would be well-loved, that dads would show affection to their children so that their children don't seek affection elsewhere. Thank you for our families, Lord. Please protect them in your name. Amen.